Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Lens. And of course, I can't hear myself in audio. Okay, there. That's that's much better. I'm sure all of you can hear me. Um, I just can't hear myself. But now I've resolved that issue. Welcome. Another episode of Behind the Lens. The end of July. Seven months down. Gone for 2018. Hard to believe. Um, But it's been a whirlwind just uh, thus far this year in film and television, and uh, from what I'm seeing on the horizon, it's going to be the same and just intensifying for the rest of the year. So get ready, uh, for, because we're already totally booked up in August uh, with special guests for you. Um, I'm looking at guests in September now uh, that we're going to tie in with Toronto Film Festival, L.A. Film Festival, so big happenings are coming, but we got big happenings happening right now, too. Um, thrilled to have, we're going to talk about Little Pink House again. Um, as you will recall, we had the, the wonderful writer-director Courtney, Courtney Balaker and producer Ted Balaker on the show several months ago for the film's theatrical release in April starring Katherine Keener. True story, uh, and addresses the issue of eminent domain, uh, case that made it all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States and spawned all kinds of litigation around the country as homeowners, cities, try to protect their land rights and their home ownership from being swallowed up by big corporations and government. So I am thrilled that we have one of the actors of the show here today, Colin Cunningham. You know him just by looking at him. He is chameleonic in his performances. Um, He has done everything from playing John Pope on Falling Skies uh, for five seasons to Electra opposite Jennifer Garner, Da Vinci's Inquest, Best in Show, The Sixth Day, X-Files, Smallville, uh, Living in Your Car, Stargate, SG-1. And my favorite, my favorite as Nardo in Mr. St. Nick opposite Kelsey Grammer and Elaine Hendricks. And I'm looking for that on Hallmark this year. We're showing Christmas movies already, and then Christmas goes in full swing on Hallmark channels the end of October. So it is one of my annual viewing pleasures. So I'm thrilled that we have Colin here, uh, who has a very prominent role in Little Pink House as co-star of Katherine Keener. He'll be here at the half hour mark. But before then, I've been interviewing like a fool the past couple weeks, uh, folks. Um, and have been talking to some really wonderful, wonderful young talent and established talent. Uh, I've got some great pieces that I had hoped to be able to bring you today with Ewan McGregor and Jim Cummings talking about Christopher Robin, but totally embargoed until 9 p.m. tonight. So you're just going to have to wait on those, uh, and check those out on behindthelensonline.net or in any one of the other out print and online outlets that carry my work in the U.S. and abroad. Uh, and then hopefully next Monday, right here on Adrenaline Radio, 
you will get to hear what Ewan McGregor and Jim Cummings have to say about Christopher Robin. Uh, and you'll get to hear what I have to say about it, too. But mum's the word right now. So today, it's uh, in honor of it being, we're in, we're in the dog days of summer now, clearly, on the East Coast, the West Coast, and everywhere in between. Well, there's a brand new film that's out called Hot Summer Nights. Uh, it is from a brand new uh, director, Elijah Bynum. Uh, it, it just It's his freshman feature, and it is a wonder to behold. It's an explosion of beauty, of stylized visuals, gorgeous color composition, married to period-perfect period musical montages that serve as the, as the framework for strong performances from Timothy Chalamet, Alex Rowe, Micah Monroe, and Maya Mitchell. Coming-of-age tale set against a beach community and an impending hurricane, and you know hormones in teens, they could rival a hurricane for rage and, and explosive nature. It is... The characters are very well crafted, but it's the performances that really, really stand out in Hot Summer Nights. And I got to talk to three of our leads, Alec, uh, Alex Rowe, who plays Hunter Adams, Maika Monroe, who plays Mika his estranged sister, Michaela, and then Maya Mitchell, who plays Amy, Hunter's girlfriend. The dynamics that are created, the juxtaposition and contrast between all the characters is wonderful to watch unfold. The chemistry amongst the actors is, even though there are tense situations within the film, you can't wait to see how each one interacts with the next in the next scene. Um, it really does rise and fall on the color of the visuals and the performances by these very talented actors. So let's take a listen to what some of our talent had to say about Hot Summer Nights. And I think the first person we're going to hear from is Maya Mitchell as she talks about jumping from, she comes right fresh off the Fosters with Disney uh, into Hot Summer Nights. Quite a change, people. She's growing up. She's trying to uh, mature her image and she does that very nicely here but take a listen to what Maya had to say about Hot Summer Nights and stepping into the role of Amy what did you think when this script landed in your lap oh, I was so excited you know we read so many scripts um, and this one really stood out I mean I read it so quickly it wasn't a drag it wasn't like turning the pages and counting how many pages like I was really invested in the way Elijah writes um, is very similar to the way it looks like the, the um, scenery and the world that he creates in his writing um, is so vivid and um, so I was just so excited and refreshed and um, I just knew that I wanted to be involved in whatever capacity I was like give me any role I have to work with this man this is incredible so yeah so what was it about the character of Amy that spoke to you? Because one of the fascinating things about Amy is that typically the nice girl wants to go for the bad boy because he's a bad boy, mm -hmm. but that's not why Amy liked Hunter. Amy saw more. Yeah. She saw vulnerability. And I'm sure it was more than, than the chocolate malt with the cherry on top. <laughs> Even though that is kind of telling that the guy just, oh, 
is a softy. He's a big softy. So I'm curious, what what spoke to you about Amy, and then driving that character into that relationship? What spoke to me about Amy in that relationship specifically was um, that it's not that stereotype of uh, you know good girl falls for bad boy becomes you know a wayward teen and it's all angsty you know it was right she actually she saw the best in him she saw past his kind of facade um where no one else could Mm -hmm. and I think he's drawn to her because she's got this kind of sweet hopeful innocence to her that he's kind of lacking in his life and so she sort of becomes this catalyst for him to turn his life around, and I thought that was really turning that kind of stereotype of that kind of relationship on its head, and that's what intrigued me about her. Yeah, and for Maya Mitchell fans, and I know there are plenty of you out there, thanks to her lengthy tenure on The Fosters, she's got another film coming out in a few weeks called Never Going Back. Uh, That is another interesting characterization and and performance turn for Maya as she marches on with these more mature roles. So, you know, keep your eye out for that one. But right now, all you Maya Mitchell fans, Hot Summer Nights, it's out there and you should see it. But, you know, joining the bad boy, the bad boy is played by Alex Rowe as Hunter. Uh, And he truly, at first blush, Alex really digs in, dives in, and captures that bad boy essence. But then there is a sweetness that he brings, and it's a really wonderful balance that he has with this characterization and his performance. Um, Many of you know Alex from things like The Fifth Wave, Forever My Girl, which uh, came out last year. He's absolutely wonderful in it. He's got a great sense of humor. He's got great sensitivity. You see that come through in this dramatic turn as well in Hot Summer Nights. So, of course, I had to ask Alex, you know, how do you tap into how do you, a, a character like Hunter and bring him to life? This is one of the most fascinating youthful characters I've seen in a while on screen. Really interesting. You bring some complexity to it. Your performance with your eyes, your physical nuance, absolutely amazing. You show us Hunter is more than just a bad boy. Thank you. And that's a difficult thing to do. So I'm curious, what led you to this part, first of all, and then how does a nice guy like you who I fell in love with your performance in Forever My Girl, mm-hmm. which you were fabulous in that. Thank you. But how do you transform then into a character like Hunter with some depth? Um, I read the script and like I wanted to, I wanted a challenge like this, and the script was incredible. The characters were so well, well written out, and they the descriptions of the characters beyond what is in the actual movie were really, they contained a lot of that depth, you know, so they hinted at that stuff and then it was down to me to try and find it out. Um, I went to Cape Cod for three weeks uh, to get the accent and to also just 
find out what this whole townie versus uh, summer birds that come on vacation in these places is what that whole juxtaposition is all about and what mm. that relationship is about. Um, stayed with some locals and uh, you could see the difference, you know, the, the people that were coming into town versus the people that had, like, withstood the terrible weather for six months and then when the weather gets good, all of a sudden the traffic is crazy, everyone is, like, um, I don't know, the seasonal work, too, as far as... They rely on the, the summer on the summer birds, but they also would rather have the place themselves. Mm. Um, so that was in, that was interesting. But then also, I, I met this guy who was a, a drug dealer in the nineties. He was a, on the Cape, a weed dealer, and he, uh, yeah, and he, I, I, I spoke to him and I spoke to a, a really close friend of his, and got both sides of the story. This kind of external front that is. Uh, necessary to be in that in that line of work for people to be scared of you in some way to people for, for there to be some kind of a legend about you that prevents people from either robbing you or prevents yourself from getting in too much trouble um, but then at the same time uh, the the more vulnerable side of that I found out from his friend um, of the loneliness that is associated with that like are they is are people liking him just because they want to get get weed, you know, or are people liking him because they feel like there's some layer of protection or something like that mm -hmm. that is so trying to delve into those two was inter was definitely interesting for me. Yeah, and Alex brings up a good point because the film is set in the 90s and of course when you're looking at youths that come into town and you're dealing and dealing marijuana you know, in this day and age with so many states that have now legalized it, that's a dying profession out there for uh, for many. Pam sitting in, in the in the booth laughing at me uh, over with that one. But that is exactly how Hunter picks up a little extra money. But what really expands his enterprise is the character of Daniel, played by Timothy Chalamet, um, who takes, you know, dealing to a new level. Uh, and it's very interesting to watch. Also interesting to watch is Timothy's chemistry with Micah Monroe, who plays his girlfriend and is Alex's character of Hunter, uh, his, his sister from whom he is estranged because of family baggage and uh, death of their mother. Um, so there, there's a lot of really heavy dramatic themes within the context of this film. And I have to hand it to writer-director Elijah Bynum uh, with incorporating so much to give texture and layer uh, to the characters so that these actors could all really bite into them. Um, but I spoke with Micah, and Micah, most of you will recognize probably... Uh, for most for her role in Independence Day Resurgence, where she played the president's daughter and was a fighter pilot in her own right. Uh, also, she played, uh, she was in Mark Felt, the man who brought down the, the White House. It really shows Micah's range because there she's playing the wife of Mark Felt, having a child. Um, here in uh, Hot Summer Nights, she's back to being 18 years old. She just goes, vacillates and goes from age to age. And, of course, we all remember her 
from the guest, which really introduced us to Dan Stevens. And of course, at any price, I think that was our first feature film with Dennis Quaid and Zac Efron, uh, which uh, was Ramin Barani's film. A truly, truly wonderful turn, and that really helped put Zac Efron uh, in the forefront as a dramatic actor, and it put Micah on our radar. So now here she is, also having just been in Tribes of Palos Verdes this summer as well. Here she is talking about her experience of getting into character with Four Hot Summer Nights. This performance as Michaela, so strong. Thank you. And the pairing with Alex mm-hmm. playing Hunter. Yeah. The most fascinating dynamic and relationship of siblings mm-hmm. to see unfold on screen. Yeah. The estrangement, but this ultimate love between yeah. the two. We don't see that too often. Yeah. So I'm mm-hmm. curious what you thought. The minute you got this script, yeah. what jumped out of you that mm-hmm. said, I have to do, do this? Yes. Um, well, you read, you read so much, and a lot of it isn't good. <laughs> and this one um, just was something so special that you could really get like a, a feel for it. And a lot of it, honestly, was the, the music that's in the movie now, most of it was actually written in the script. So you're reading it, you, you have like music playing, and you kind of like, you really get this vibe. But I also agree, the relationships, I think, were so interesting mm-hmm. and um, so well-written. And then I met with Elijah and was just like, I, I want to work with him and I wanted to make this movie and I wanted to play the role. Because see, you have enough of depth and background. Mm-hmm. You can judge when you talk yeah. to a director. Yeah. Do they really, do they, do have they know? Vision? Definitely. Do they have a vision? <laughs> yeah. And can they execute yeah. on yeah. that vision? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Because this vision, and I'm curious from your perspective, this film is so visual. Yeah. You've got, it's an explosion of music and visuals. You've got the beautiful musical montages going on, and the visuals just eye-popping. Yeah. I mean, and then it all marries yeah. together. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Um, I think, speaking with Elijah, he um, had s- such a specific idea. We were just talking about this in another um, interview about how he had storyboarded everything. He kind of knew how he wanted mm-hmm. it to look, and... Um, kind of this consistent movement throughout the movie with it, with the camera, and then the coloring and everything. It just um, kind of it came together in a really, uh, really great way. How did you get into the character of Michaela because of the distinct personas that she has, mm-hmm. the chemistry and relationship with Hunter, mm-hmm. and then with Daniel? Yeah, very different. Um, working with Elijah was really helpful. We talked. Um, kind of a lot about the, the the past and the present and kind of especially kind of losing her mom and that, that relationship and kind of um, anger that she has with, mm-hmm. with her brother. Um, but for me, to be totally honest, a thing that always helps me with um, characters, sometimes the most, is um, wardrobe. Wardrobe is like such a huge part. I love, I love working with um, the costume designers on movies. Um, and for me, that's just like you know, you kind of come to life with, mm-hmm. with you know, it's like picking out the, like, I always picture, like, picking out the closet of this character, and, you know, um, it's always been, yeah, very um, important.
important to me to like really feel like that person. So that's always a fun process for me. Getting into the darker shades <laughs> of Michaela, of which there are many. There's pompous and arrogant yep. in the initial treatment mm-hmm. of Daniel, but how do you sink yourself and you know slide in yeah. to those darker moments of which there are many? Yeah, <laughs> definitely. I mean, I I don't know. It's like. Um, Sometimes for me, those, for whatever reason, are kind of easier in a sense, just because um, you, you kind of have to draw from your own experiences or imagine, for me, like losing my mom at an age, um, you know, being like a young teenager and what that would do for me and not having like the support of a mom and like the stuff that you go through when you're 13 and you need a bra or you have your period. And if you didn't have a mom and you're doing all these things on your own, you kind of become an adult quicker and you don't get to experience certain things that a kid should experience Mm -hmm. um so yeah I think trying to kind of like tap into that and and think about how that would affect me at 18 and, Mm -hmm. and and um yeah and that was Micah Monroe you know as I mentioned Hot Summer Nights the visuals are stunning the it's an explosion of color and again the music is fabulous. It is. It really captures the vibe of the 90s. Um, a lot of Bowie, Dance Hall Days, Major Tom. Um, but I would be remiss not to mention the cinematographer, Javier Julia. He had previously done Wild Tales, The Last Elvis. Uh, he has a very distinctive lensing style. And here, it is absolutely beautiful. His use of dissolves, which also surprises me because um, with Elijah as the director, a lot of younger first-time directors forget about that beautiful little tool of dissolve. Uh, and it really works very well with the imagery that is captured here on film. And also, uh, wonderful use of extreme close-ups, uh, close-ups, particularly with scenes involving Timothy Chalamet and Micah Monroe. So you can catch Hot Summer Nights. It is out there. It is in theaters. I think it's also on digital now. Well worth a look in these hot summer days. So moving on. Should we take a momentary break, Pam, and then come back and jump into screen life, screen reality, and unfriended dark web? What? Take a break? Okay, we're going to take a short break. We will be right back in a minute, and we're going to talk about Unfriended Dark Web. When you purchase the latest TV, tablet, or smartphone, don't forget to do the right thing with your old ones. Recycle them. The Consumer Electronics Association and its members are making recycling your old devices as easy as buying new ones. Just go to greenergadgets.org, type in your zip code, and you'll instantly find the recycling location closest to your home. You'll also find recycling tips, like asking the store where you buy your new TV if they'll haul away your old one. Don't let your old tech tools clog your local landfill. Just visit greenergadgets.org. Okay, kids, the campfire's out. Let's hit the road. Uh, Dad, the fire's not out. It's still smoking. No, uh, close enough. Come on, Dad, do your homework. If it's too hot to touch, then it's too hot to leave. I knew that. 
You're never too young to get your Smokey on. If you see someone in danger of starting a wildfire, step in and make a difference. Brought to you by Smokey Bear, the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Learn more at SmokeyBear.com. Only you can prevent wildfires. Oh, and that was a very fun PSA to run. Smokey Bear by Sam Elliott. That always makes me happy. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Unfriended Dark Web. You heard me, I brought it up last week, um, and I have mentioned it in the past. And this screen language that was essentially created by a Timur Beck Mambatov, uh, who you're going to hear from later in a couple weeks. I had to sit down with him yesterday in person. Um, it's a big joke between Timur and I, because every time we talk, it's all, he's called into the show now three times, two times. He has been in Russia, uh, when he is called in, in the middle, when he's called into the show live. Um, but we actually got to sit down face to face, which was a a change, a nice change for us. Uh, and we went really in depth about this screen life language, uh, that he has brought to the forefront that we are now seeing in films like Unfriended a few years ago, its sequel, Unfriended Dark Web, and the upcoming Searching, which, folks, I got to tell you, put Searching on your ca- on your calendars now. You do not want to miss that film. It is phenomenal, starring John Cho and Deborah Messing, which will mark a really big jump for this screen life language. These are the first really big name stars that have come on board for a screen life language lensed film uh, and written and directed by Anish uh, Shiganti, uh, co-written and produced by Sev O'Hanion. Um, Sev is also one of the producers uh, from Fruitvale Station a number of years ago and brought us uh, Michael B. Jordan, Ryan Coogler. So you're going to hear all more uh, from uh, Timur Ananish and Sev in the coming weeks as we get closer to the searching release date on August 24. But right now we're going to talk about Unfriended Dark Web, which falls under that screen life, screen reality language developed by Timur. Um, who, uh, folks, if you don't know Timur's work, please, please check it out. Uh, from Wanted to his Russian films, Day Watch, Night Watch. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. I know many of you don't like it, but there's some really good stuff in there. Um, And of course, Ben-Hur, which uh, contrary to what many think is truly, truly a wonderful, a wonderfully made film. And that is because of Timur's vision. And also bringing in Roma Downey and Mark Burnett as executive producers on the production. Uh, and you heard all about Ben-Hur last year, with my thanks to my interviews with Jack Houston, uh, Toby Kebbell, and some others. But going to Unfriended Dark Web, with this screen life, screen reality, the whole premise is you are looking at a screen, as you, as every one of us does, uh, all day long, every day, we look at a computer screen, we look at a device screen. And what screen life language does is 
everything unfolds within the screen and all you are seeing are screens layered and layered and layered um, as events are transpiring. Unfriended Dark Web delves into the dark web. Um, Not a pretty place to be. Of course, most of us think of the dark web as being WikiLeaks, Snowden. Uh, The dark web is so much worse and so much darker than that, as we see with thanks to Stephen Susco's vision uh, and his storyline, as we have a group of, of millennials getting together online for a weekly game night only to stumble into the dark web and a different kind of game that's being played. And that game starts infiltrating all of their computers and starts uh, tripping over into the real world and not just something that you're looking at online, but it starts to personally affect each and every person. Um, It is just, it's an incredible incredible experience and the advancements that have happened between unfriended and unfriended dark web and what Steven Susco brings to the mix really takes it to take screen life, screen reality to a new level, makes it much more immersive uh, with more things unfolding and happening in front of your face. Just imagine sitting at your computer screen and opening up 20 different browsers with little windows all over the place. Um, but I don't know. Should we? Uh, how long is clip number one for Stephen? Okay. You know what we're going to do? We've got Colin holding. We're going to come back and I'll let you hear my exclusive with Stephen talking about the creation of Dark Web and directing it. But since we already have Colin on the line, we're going to bring Colin Cunningham on live. Welcome, Colin Cunningham. <laughs> How are you, Debbie? I am so excited to be happening to uh, to be here talking to you today. I mean, I have been well, such a f- huge fan of your work for so long. Oh, you're awesome! I mean, watching you uh, play with Noah on Falling Skies, <laughs> you know that. But I have to say, I said at the top of the show, my all-time favorite performance of yours. Is in Mr. Saint Nick. In Mr. Saint Nick, I kid you not. <laughs> that mo- that is that is one of my holiday rituals. I cannot wait for Hallmark to run it again this year. But I just well, that is <laughs> that 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 actually has a, a bit of a, a soft spot in my heart because that was a film when I got to work with. Uh, the incredible Charles Durning, and uh, that was one of the highlights of my of my career. Was just to work. I mean, he was in Dog. He won a Golden Globe for Dog Day Afternoon, and I was just a big, big fan of that movie. Anyway, that's wonderful. Thank you so very much. No, that is that is always on my must see holiday list. And <laughs> you know, they nobody played it during Christmas in July screenings this this summer on Hallmark or Lifetime or Hallmark Movie and Mysteries. So I'm very. Pr- very perturbed about that. I've got to wait until after <laughs> October 26th now to see it. But I oh, well. love that film, and I love your performance as Nardo. We really get to see, <laughs> you really get to play with your comedic chops. I'm so <laughs> Well, I remember when we did that, it was kind of funny because when I showed up to the makeup trailer, 
they said, well, what do you want to do? Your hair looks great. And I said, no, I want to shave it. And they said, what do you mean you want to I said, I want to shave just the sides to make it look like I'm receding. And they thought I was crazy because most actors show up and they say, yeah, fill in whatever I don't have. Or here I was looking to take it away. Oh, my God. But, no, I just have so much fun when I watch you as Nardo in that film. You've already got Kelsey Grammer who goes over the top when he gets paired up with Elaine Hendricks. But <laughs> who is always a delight. But then the comedy that you bring. But And then I turn around and I look at you in something like Falling Skies or in Stargate SG-1. And that just... Your skill set, your chameleonic take in transforming yourself and your persona with each and every role is phenomenal. There are actors who can play, do drama, who can do comedy, but there are still veins of similarity. You can actually push the well, envelope I... so far that it's like watching two totally different people. Well, I really appreciate that. I really, I really do. Uh, if anything, sometimes it can be difficult. Um, I mean, look, it's hard enough as an actor, uh, even if you're a character actor. But I'm, I'm not a leading man or a character actor. I'm an actor who does characters, mm-hmm. and so it's not like anybody. It's not like I can get a job based on the last job I did because I don't even know what I'm going to do until uh, until I audition for it. You know, so. It can be a, it can be an interesting, you know, kind of life, especially when you you show up and you walk into an audition into a room, you know, and there's there's twenty other guys there that are wanting to take that sandwich right out of your mouth, and you got to beat them out, and you got to do it for every single job you get. So it, it it can be tough. Anyway, I appreciate that very much because some of my favorite actors of all time, um, you know, the Peter Sellers and the Alec Guinnesses and the uh, you know, it's those kinds of, of, I think the best compliment I ever got was uh, a reviewer called me Canada's Gary Oldman. Ooh. <laughs> thought, well, that's pretty cool. I'm not even Canadian, and I still thought that was the greatest thing in the world. That's, that's pretty incredible. That really is an incredible compliment. My God, Colin. Um, and here, I love you. Yeah, but if I, can, if I can go out in public from whatever, nobody knows who I am. I know I've done my job. You know, it's nice to be acknowledged, but, uh, you know, I'll tell you, I, I've got friends of mine that are familiar faces, and they're like, come on, let's go out. I'm like, no, not with you. Like, let's stay in, because you can't. It's awful when you go out and people recognize you. So at, at best, if if I'm recognized at all, it's like, where do I know that guy from? <laughs> you know, school, or where do I, you know, it's, it's familiar, but you can't quite place where, and that's just fine with me. Yeah, no, I, I totally relate. You know, several decades ago, I, I actually was you know, hanging out with some very notable, prominent people in television at the time. And we would try and go out to dinner and people would come up yeah, and, and, and sho- I mean, he's bringing a, a fork of food up to his mouth and they're shoving a napkin between the fork of food and his mouth wanting an autograph. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it, it's like, <laughs> yeah, no. So I totally understand where you're coming from. But, you know, what I love with all of your, with the diversity of all of your performances and your characters, Colin, you've managed to do stage, television, and film. A lot more television than film, but then every once in a while you pop up in something really cool like Electra, like The Sixth Day, like Best in Show, or 
like Little Pink House, which I love your performance as Billy Van Winkle in Little Pink House. Oh, thank you very much. Well, it, it, it was nice because when that came along, I mean, for so for so long, look, as an actor, you, you do what you do, and, and often it's genre kind of stuff. You're in a green screen or you're shooting laser beams at aliens or it's a cop show or it's a horror thing. Um, whereas what was really great about Little Pink House was this is a true story. Yeah. A very true story about a, a woman trying to hang on to her home. And the, the, the word that people hadn't been familiar with, eminent domain, and, you know, do, is your home your home? Do you have the right to where you live that's yours? And anyway, this, this woman, this, this incredible woman, Suzette Kilo, took, uh, took that all the way to the Supreme Court in terms of trying to keep her little pink house. So it's, it's, it's great in that it's a true story and it's not, uh, you know, it's not about trying to save the galaxy. It's about trying to save your house. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, and when I, when I read the scripts and Courtney Ballacher, the director, um, she got the rights to the book, little pink house. And I just thought, God, what a great project to belong to. And, and sort of the, the extra wonder of the whole project was I actually got to meet the real people. I got to meet Suzette, and I got to wow. meet, um, you know, the people that took on this cause. And we're talking about years of, yeah. of work and, and real drama, you know, drama that lasts more than 90 minutes sitting in a darkened theater. And you're, you're really wondering if, if, if the American dream or if you're home or just everything you know and care about is even going to be there tomorrow. So it's, it was really, really cool to work on a, on a on a true story that had real heart and real history behind it. Yeah, I know Courtney and uh, Ted did the show uh, back in April, and we talked at great length about this. And it's the true story aspect and the whole this whole idea of eminent domain that people don't know anything about it. it just is that you know you were attracted to that. That's something that attracted Courtney and Ted as well. Um, yeah. And but what she very keenly did um is rather than focus on all of the specific legal steps because this thing did rage on for a number of years until the Supreme Court decision in 2005. Um so I mean it it's very taxing emotionally on somebody and on the people involved and that's really where Courtney focused this story is on the people that Pfizer's moves to and the city's moves to exercise eminent domain where it really taxed on the wear and tear of the people and their heart and their spirit. And that's something that you really brought out in the character of Billy, a known activist anyway. Um, but, you know, a mild mannered, you know, you got a deli, you got a coffee shop, but business is dying and you really brought so much to that character that the average viewer can tap into is, hey, this could be me. Yeah, well, that's, well I'll tell you, I got I to gotta hand it to Keener. Uh, Captain Keener did just such an amazing job playing Suzette Kilo and really brought a, a life and a, a credibility to um to, to to the real Suzette. I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it, look, it was just such a it was such a, a privilege to, to to be a part of. And uh, and the great thing is, you get 
if you're able to, well, it's going direct TV or pay-per-view or, or whatever the service is now, de- definitely check it out. It's, uh, it's a fantastic film and it's, it, it's just, uh, you know, it's just like, wow, that like, that really happened, you know? And yeah. in some places it's still happening, you know? Yeah. How was that experience for you playing opposite Catherine Keener? Because really it boiled down to you and to Callum Reith Rennie as the only two guys that she really was interacting with through this movie. Um, well, I'll tell you, the, the, when you're blessed with working with actors that are, you know, of caliber, that are really, really good, it actually just makes it so much easier. And I'm not saying any, I'm any, any, you know, gift to, to the lens, but, uh, but it, it actually makes it a lot easier. It's just freeing. It's just, you just kind of get it. Um, and it's just nice. It's just like uh, all of us, the wind all of a sudden starts is at your back and you just begin to glide and, and, and it's, it just, it kind of elevates itself a little bit, which is just such a, a treat from say, you know, and again, not to knock it, but just your nine to five kind of procedural episodic, um, which is often our bread and butter. So yeah. it's really nice to step out of that and to explore things and, and to really try and bring some, some truth, um, you know, to the story versus, you know, let's, uh, you know, let's try this conditioner so we can ser- sell more, you know, more cars at the commercial. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's, I, I find it interesting for you because here you are, you've been juggling, you've gone between big studio things, big uh, series that are fully supported by a network to little one-offs where you come in, get out. So you have... You've really covered the gamut of everything there is to do. And the fact that, you know, you have all these series that you can do that you get embedded in. You have the, you know, the big blockbuster experiences. And then you choose a little indie gem like Little Pink House. Um, do you like that ability to, the, to find these little gems like this? Well, God, I wish I had that. I wish I had an ability to find them. Um, I'd certainly do more of them. But, you know, just, just in terms of a career or picking and choosing, it, it's like you try your best, but it's a bit of an illusion. I mean, I was I was lucky in that I knew Courtney um, and that the movie turned out really well, whereas mm. I've done a lot of things that you think will turn out great and they turn out to be crap or you do something that you spot oh my god this is crap and it ends up getting nominated for three or four academy awards you just never know it's it's the strangest thing really i mean you can read some scripts that are they're just really awful that turn out to be great movies and then you read some great scripts that turn out to be bad and there's everything in between and under the sun so what you do do is if if you if the material speaks to you and you think you can bring some kind of truth to it, then uh, then you just simply just give it everything you have and and you kind of let go and let the universe, let God, whatever, just kind of take care of the rest. Because I'll tell you, even if you can go out and make a bad movie, it's really hard to do. It's, it's so many miracles and a million things need to happen just for you to walk out of a movie theater to say, eh, that was crap. <laughs> so to actually get you know, to, to be in a film that actually has something going for it. It's like, wow, that was great. It's a, it's a bit of a miracle, to, to be honest. Well, you know, I'm curious from your perspective, because you have also written and directed. 
you did your short back in 2009, centigrade. You sure. made the Academy yep. shortlist. That is nothing to sneeze at. <laughs> um, you know, I haven't seen you step back behind the camera since then. Well, I'll tell you, there was, it was, I, I, I just, if anything, it's because I've been so damn lucky. Uh, and that there were a number of projects that were warm, and then I would book falling skies. And I thought, okay, well, this is only going to last for a season. And then five, six years later, you're still on it. And you're like, wow, uh, this is still going. You know, so there's uh, a number of different things. And, of course, you've got life to navigate and all that kind of stuff. But I, uh, I, haven't, uh, I haven't given up entirely. If anything, centigrade, we're developing it into to something else and, and, and pitching various aspects of TV and film and all that kind of stuff. So that, that hasn't gone anywhere. But right now, I'm definitely enjoying the acting. Well, I mean, and you've got so much going on. We've got Preacher happening. Blood drive, you yeah, just, you just every... blood drive, you just finished, correct? Last year. Yeah, that was a treat. We got out to South Africa and we shot uh, shot one season of Blood Drive. Unfortunately, it wasn't renewed. But I'll tell you, if you're into things that are not the norm, I'm I'm still shocked that they ever greenlit that project to begin with because it was just so <laughs> bonkers, crazy. So I'm grateful we got 13 episodes of. Absolute insanity! Wow! Uh, forevermore. That's that's in the it's in the box. We we did it. We shot it. So now now fill me in on preacher. What what is because that's you know that's current. That's happening, um, and you're in it. All of it. Yeah. No, preacher's fantastic. <laughs> uh, basically, uh, preacher is a show that is uh, it's produced by Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg and Sam Catlin, uh, and these are just three absolutely bonkers, crazy guys that essentially got the rights to the, uh, the, the graphic novel Preacher, which is just a, a bonkers, just a really, really crazy uh, <laughs> graphic novel. And they thought, hey, let's, let's make a TV show out of this. The show's nuts. You can't, I can't even explain it. It's everything from... From it's got some crazy voodoo stuff in there. God is in it. Uh, there's a there's a vampire in it. Uh, people, you know, you some of the episodes take place in heaven. Others take place in Burbank, California. You never <laughs> quite know what or how. And it's been uh, we shot it in New Orleans, and I was just really happy to uh, to to be a part of it. It was an absolute blast. You know, you're telling me you're shooting this bonkers show in New Orleans. Everyone I know that shoots in New Orleans, especially on these shows that are a little out of the mainstream, have some of these more crazy thematics or situations going on. They love the vibe that New Orleans gives them for performance and for the integrity of a show. Did you find that in shooting Preacher there? Well, I definitely found New Orleans has its own thing. And again, look, I just dropped in for four or five months and then was gone. But it's it's really interesting because it's not, I mean, even people in Louisiana, the great state of Louisiana will say New Orleans is not Louisiana. New Orleans is New Orleans. Mm-hmm. The Spanish have been there. The French have been there. It's got some crazy-ass history that goes long back before the United States was the United States. So there are some really wild chapters and and there's that, that, that's if there is if ghosts do exist i would think that they're uh <laughs> that, that the most mo- the majority of them are all hanging out in new orleans 
you know, what what is it that you look for anymore at this stage of your career? You are established. You are a known commodity. What do you look for when a script comes across your desk? I mean, you're not like a a hungry kid who's just starting out and they're taking everything that's landing, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. But you now have the experience behind you of, okay, who's directing this? You know, are they any good? Does the cinematographer suck? Are they any good? Because you want to look good on camera. Um, You know, or does it come down to the written word? For me, it's just, I mean, you get, look, I'm grateful for anything that I get or I'm blessed to go out for because it's still very much an audition type of job. Um, you know, even if you've got a couple of Academy Awards on your shelf, like somebody's still going to want to see you audition because I want to see how you interact with that character and right. with that character. So it's it's the chemistry you're you're working with. It's not, oh, you know, We'll just hire that person because not, not if you're serious about making something that's good. You got to you want to check stuff out. But look, I guess for me, it's always been: Am I able to do? Am I able to bring something to it? And mm-hmm. I may look at a lead role. It's the lead, and mm-hmm. I just don't see anything in it. But the guy that has two lines at the urinal, mm-hmm. yeah, I can do something with that. So give me give me that guy. It's like, well, that's only two lines. Yeah, but I can, I'd rather be remembered for two lines than forgotten for playing a lead that I never should have had or that I couldn't mm-hmm. do anything with, you know? Well, I can honestly tell you, Colin, in my 30-plus years as a critic, you were the first person that has ever said that. <laughs> I kid well, you, look, I kid case, you case not. The point, it's like... You, well, look at, uh, what was I think it was Rob Reiner's mom, right? When Estelle, Harry met yeah. Sally. She's got the best, that's it. She's got the best line of the whole damn movie, you know? I mean, that's one of the all-time greatest movie lines. <laughs> totally I'll, 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 I'll have what she's bring having. Back, bring back Nora Ephron, please. Oh, God, I'll tell you. No, that, I mean, that really... That that makes me happy that you have that outlook. I know most people say, well, I look at the script. I look at the writing. Oh, I look at the director. And those are fat, those are 100% darn good things to be looking at when you're looking at something. But I love your mindset of what you can bring, even if it's just for the two-line character or the walk-on guy. I love that. No, I remember... Uh... I remember going to an audition once and um, and there's an actor, Dan Payne, that I knew from Stargate. And uh, Dan's a great guy. Anyway, the part was like for the husband, the dad. And I walked into the room and the audition room and I could see or in the waiting room, rather. And Dan was there and I'm like, oh, you got it. Like, it's his. Like, I would, you've got to give it, he's got to have it. It's his part to have. And they called me in to read. And I remember going into the audition saying, look, Forget about it. Your guy is, is right after me. You got to hire Dan. Like, I'm just so not the guy. I mean, I'll read the scene if you want, but you got to go with Dan Payne. He'll, he'll, he'll do a great job for you. So I literally went in and wasted my audition endorsing Dan. And sure enough, he got the part because he was perfect for it, you know? Oh, so, God. hey, look, some things are for you and sometimes they're not. And you just kind of roll with it, right? Yeah. So, what's next on the horizon for you? You know, are you still shooting well, right Preacher now, or moving on? I'm calling you from Buffalo, New York, where Ooh. I'm shooting Bashira, 
or Bashira, which is a Japanese horror flick. And uh, I'm super, super happy to be to be doing this. So it's basically uh, doing one of these wonderful uh, horror films with the Japanese, and the Japanese got their own little oh, work yeah. to, uh, to the horror genre. So I'm having a good time. I'm up here doing that, and we're doing some fun stuff. So are you playing the horrific character in this, or... You know, no, was... if anything, this is a real stretch for me because I'm playing a dad. Oh, my God. Yeah, I know. Oh, I know. my God. Like the one thing I never play is somebody's dad, but I'm playing somebody's dad, so it's great. <laughs> In a horror movie, no less. Any idea when yeah. uh, when it will be coming out or making the festival rounds or something? Uh, I don't even know. I'm uh, I'm hoping for a theatrical release, but we'll see. I know we're, we've just basically begun, and I know they they go to Osaka in October uh, to, uh, to to shoot some on location uh, stuff in Japan. So I don't, I'm looking forward to seeing it. It'll be really really cool. Okay, do you get to go to Osaka, or you just have to be content with Buffalo? No, they're going to make my little part of Buffalo look like Osaka. <sighs> I'd rather go to Osaka and have them make Osaka look like Buffalo. But oh. you got to do what you got to do. Oh, my God. I'll tell you. Well, people can <laughs> see you everywhere, Colin. I mean, this is they can find your stuff on Netflix, on Hulu. And, you know, and Little Pink House is it's the DVD is out now, too. It came out on, last week on the 24th and it's on demand. So people can see you there in a really great turn. But okay, now well you... for uh, for a while there, the only place you could only place you could find me was on the on the side of a milk carton. So oh. it's uh, <laughs> nice to be working. <laughs> Colin, I am so thrilled I got to talk to you. This has been a real treat today, and now I'm going to be watching for Bashira or however we're going to pronounce it because it's a horror movie. <laughs> I have to see it. You're in it. I have to see it. It's a win-win for me, even though it's not even done. It's a win-win. <laughs> well, thank you so very, very much, and thanks for uh, supporting Little Pink House and Courtney and Suzette Kilo and just that whole story. It's an important, oh. uh, important one to get out there. Thank you. And I hope you'll come back on Behind the Lens again. Hope so. Will do. Absolutely promise. Terrific. Thanks so much, Colin. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. And that was Colin Cunningham. All right, I do want to see his, when it's finished, I want to see this Japanese horror film. You know, shooting in Buffalo, making it look like Osaka, Japan. All right. Okay, well, let us jump back to Unfriended Dark Web. And because I want you to hear some of, because we're going to be talking about this screen life and screen reality in the coming weeks uh, because of the upcoming searching as well. But I want you to hear what writer-director Stephen Susco talked about with me in terms of where this particular story of Unfriended Dark Web came from. Take a listen. Oh, my God. You have taken it to the next level very smartly, setting it within the dark web, which is a reality. For visceral horror, you put it in the real world with the darkness of the unseen that taps into the ignorance and naivete of people. And oh, man, you're totally singing my song. <laughs> and the vitriol and the evil that lurks within many people. Yeah. And greed. Yeah. Um, this is just... Yeah, I, and you do it all. Your subtext, 
dealing with issues of tra human trafficking, kidnapping, torture, the worst things in the world, the things we hear about with waterboarding and all kinds of things and what happens in the Sudan. And mm -hmm. you bring all of this together under this web, pardon the pun, of the dark web. Yeah. And it is so smartly written. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. I just... Yeah, you truly advanced this franchise to the next level. That's so great to hear. Well, I mean, you know, I was really blessed to have... Timor and Nelson, you know, and and Andrew Westman, who edited the first mm -hmm. movie, to have that whole team involved in this was what really made that work, um, because they had all done it before and they had learned all those lessons, and I was completely new to this and without their orientation, you know. Well, you're on. This is a new burgeoning platform. This yeah. is a new burgeoning style. Mm -hmm. So you are still on the cutting edge. You are in the infancy of. Yeah. Of this. Yeah. And we were making these movies. I mean, I'm sure you know that we, our editing room was next to three others, where three others of these movies in Timor's offices were being oh, made, yeah. Timor directing one of them. So being able to kind of walk from room to room and see how other people were taking the same restrictions and telling a completely different kind of story mm -hmm. was really fascinating. It was, it was like being in a lab every day. You know, it was, it was exciting. It was you a great environment to make a movie. You know what I, you know what I love here is you've got Kevin Stewart's cinematography yep. because people don't realize there is cinematography involved here. Totally. With each yeah. one of these sets, each one of these rooms in which each one of our characters is sitting there with a device, mm -hmm. there's cinematography involved. Absolutely. Yeah. Then you have the overall tonal bandwidth of, you know, what you're using as your essential screensaver background with all of these things popping up. Yeah. And then you throw in Andrew's editing, which is just killer. And animating. And sound design. Andrew. Well, I gotta, like I gotta tell you, man I of mean, many hats. the glitching, <laughs> uh, you know, the animation and the, and the VFX is just fabulous. Yeah, it works really well, I think. Just fabulous. Where did the idea for this story come from, Stephen? I mean, everybody's curious about the dark web. Yeah. But they think of the dark web and they think of Snowden. Mm-hmm. Um, they think of WikiLeaks. Mm. They don't think about this. Yeah, they don't. Yeah. Well, I mean, the idea came from several sources. The, the first was that the first movie was so singular and so awesome mm -hmm. that that I didn't want to sequelize it because I've never directed before and I've been very cautious about directing and wanting my first movie to be something that was different and something that as a horror fan I'd want to see. Yeah, um, you got different. Well, I mean, you know, you can understand though the idea of <laughs> the idea of doing a pale shadow of something that worked really well yeah. just would have made no sense like as a as a as a director. So my, my first instinct was I want to do the opposite of mm -hmm. that. I want to I want to make it real world instead of supernatural. I want to make it PG thirteen instead of R. I want to take violence off camera instead of on camera. I want there to be characters whose friendships actually hold up, whose friendships are real. I want them to be characters who are approaching 30 and not teenagers. I just, there was an immediate gut instinct to say, I just, I don't want to do anything like that because it was so good. And, and if I, I don't want people to compare them essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and I was shocked that they said yes because it's a franchise. And franchise, you don't change everything in a franchise. Um, but they would, they would. But when you're dealing with Timur and Jason Blum, yeah, you can. That's what's amazing. <laughs> That's what's really amazing about the way they operate. I mean, it's so idea friendly and director friendly. And, you know, you don't meet a lot of producers that are excited about trying something new. Usually, if you say that, they get alarmed. Mm -hmm. They say, can't we just do what, what worked last Friday? You know, well, you know, like that, that other movie. Let's do something like that other movie. Um, so, I mean, you can see, I mean, you know, Timor, like, it's amazing to work with a guy. Like, they, they were just like, 
every time I would say let's try something we haven't seen before, they would they would say yes, and let's go even further than you want. Then then you know what about this? What about mm-hmm. this? And when you have that kind of team assembling a movie, it's just you know it's going to be a fun ride, and you know that you're going to be you're going to be blazing some new territory and. You know, so that that was kind of the first exciting thing was when I realized that they actually wanted to try something new, and mm-hmm. then and then the second thing was sort of just my own exposure to this stuff. Um, I spent a couple of years writing a movie with a, CIA, a former CIA agent. I just learned a lot about um, surveillance and our technology and what the government can can or can't do, and and that was pretty alarming. And um, but but what was particularly alarming was was a conversation I had with someone else in the intelligence services where I, I kind of made a comment about, you know, but I guess you're going to tell me that if I'm not doing anything wrong, I don't have to worry because the government won't spy on me. And they said, well, probably, but it's actually not us you have to worry about. And I was like, how do you mean? <laughs> and he said, well, we're the government. I mean, we're not the best at this. Those are the people you have to worry about. You have to worry about the people who can do this better than we can, but are also like 18 years old mm-hmm. and maybe still live in the parents' basement, maybe haven't cultivated a moral compass yet. Um, and are bored out of their minds and really technically skilled and maybe a little sociopathic. Um, and that scared the crap out of me because he was completely right. Um, and if you think about it, the dark web, like people talk about the dark web like it's this, you know, this unique thing. And I actually just think it's an extrapolation of what humans have been doing very mm-hmm. well for thousands of years, which is just finding the shadowed corner of yeah. the park. And... Unfriended Dark Web is in theaters now. But hey, you know, Steven Susco, I know a lot of his fans are out there. The Man Behind the Grudge, 1 and 2, and The Possession, which stars one of my faves, Jeffrey Dean Morgan. Uh, we'll have more on this screen life technique and where it's coming and going, over, as I said, over the next coming weeks. Uh, you'll hear my interview with Timur Bekmambatov, uh, as well as the writers and director of searching but next week we're going to have heather actress heather mccomb is with us talking about her new film pretty bad actress uh and legendary legendary lee aronson will be joining us uh who has a, a new project in the works so that is all the time we have today uh later this week sometime tonight You'll be able to go on social media, go to BehindTheLensOnline.net, find out everything I have to say about Christopher Robin, Ewan McGregor, Winnie the Pooh, and Tigger 2. Uh, so, and until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Yeah.